ahead and dive into it. Hey, when you came in, hopefully somebody handed you one of these uh, new Sermon on the Mount Scripture journals. Uh, if you did not get one of these, um, some of our awesome staff are in the back. All you got to do is raise your hand. If you raise your hand, you didn't get one. There's a few people here didn't didn't get one. Keep your hand up, um, and they'll come find you, and they'll give you one of these. Um, I mean, our Minister to Families, Lindsay, who's passing these out right now, uh, created these along with Josh Gardner, uh, our, our uh, Minister to Students. Uh, they created these just for you all as we go through this series together as a resource for you. I'll talk more about it in a little bit. So you can open that up to the very first page or you can flip in your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 5 is where the Sermon on the Mount begins. And we're going we're gonna to dive into it this morning. We're going to begin unpacking it together and we're going to unpack it for the next several months here at Flourishing Grace all the way up until May, uh, the end of May, will be in the Sermon on the Mount. Some of you are like, man, that's a long time. Man, I am struggling to just fit it in. Like this morning was supposed to be on the Beatitudes. I got through four of them at the 9.15. All right, so we'll see how it goes here at 11, friends. We're going to see what we can get through. Sermons are interesting things. Um, 40 some odd weeks out of the year, I get to stand up here and, and give a sermon to you all. And usually if I'm not here, I, I'm probably giving a sermon someplace else at a different church or, or maybe like a youth retreat or something like that. Um, man, I preach a lot of sermons and preachers and sermons are kind of like flight attendants, right? The flight attendant uh, as this massive metal tube with gigantic jet fueled engines is like backing out, which is just insane and alone in itself, right? The flight attendants kind of take to the aisles with like fake seat belts and fake oxygen mask and uh, their little pamphlet thing. And they begin like this really, really important spiel, right? It's like, hey, if, if this fails, and there's a decent chance it's going to fail, okay? If it fails... I'm useless to you. So you need, you need to know some things here. And then I mean, as you're sitting there, if, if, next time you're in a flight, maybe you travel for work or travel a lot with your family, next time you're sitting there, just look around. Uh, the guy over here has got his boy, Bose noise-canceling headphones on. You're like, you don't realize what's happening here, man. Like the person over here has got their, their AirPods in. The person over here is like reading some romance novel. I'm like, I, I don't know what that's about, but I guarantee you it's not as important as this, right? The guy over there is like on his like spreadsheet for work. He's like on his business trip. You're like, dude, what are you doing? Like they're trying to tell you how to get out alive. And you're just like ignoring it. What does the matter with you, right? Um, and like, no, 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 like it's fine. Like these engines are like designed to like run. I'm like, so is the engine in my car? How many of you in the room have ever had an engine in your car go out? Like you've had some problems, engine problems. Okay, most of you. No, not, not the airplane engine though. It's, it's different, right? It's a different in engines, man. Trust me. I'm just telling you, pay attention to what they're trying to say. In the same way, preachers, every week, I'm like, all right, here's the gospel. Like here's how we get out alive. Here's God's plan for human flourishing, right? You want your, your marriage and your kids and your relationships and Christ, like, here it is. And the guy back there is like checking fantasy football. Man. I'm like, what are you doing? The person over there is taking a nap. What is happening? Just kidding. That's not happening. What gives me like so much peace as a preacher is that the Sermon on the Mount is the same thing. It's the same thing. There's no doubt that the Sermon on the Mount is the most well-known sermon of all time. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. Right? Presidents and politicians, world leaders quote the Sermon on the Mount. Everybody knows at least a part of the Sermon on the Mount. Everybody in this room could quote, maybe, maybe it might be a little rough, but you could quote at least a part of the Sermon on the Mount. 
the golden rule, love your enemies, judge not, right? People love to quote that one. Um, celebrities quote the Sermon on the Mount. Musicians, right? One of my favorite bands is the Lumineers, and they just came out with a new album a couple months ago. And my favorite song on the album, they sing about the Sermon on the Mount. They sing about how, man, they love the Sermon on the Mount, but they don't, they don't understand it. And at least they're being honest about it. But everybody knows the Sermon on the Mount. It is the most well-known sermon of all time. And it's, it is regarded by many as the greatest sermon of all time. Of all religions on the earth, people hold the Sermon on the Mount in high regard. Buddhist. And Muslims hold the Sermon on the Mount in high regard. All walks of life. And so while it is the most well-known sermon of all time, I would argue that it's also the most misunderstood sermon of all time. And the least applied sermon of all time. Like Jesus is offering his plan for human flourishing. Here's what it looks like to be human in the kingdom of God. This guy over here has got his Bose noise-canceling headphones on. He's like, oh, I'll get to that someday. I don't really understand it, so... Ah, but it's beautiful. I love it. I, it's, I love it, but I don't quite grasp it. Here's the reality of the Sermon on the Mount. Everybody who hears the Sermon on the Mount ends up in one of two categories. And there's no middle road. There's no like third category. It's one of two things. And I'm not the one who's saying this. Jesus actually says this. In order to understand the Sermon on the Mount, and to feel the weight of the Sermon on the Mount, you have to go to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you would, kind of flip with me real quick to the very end, to the very end. So maybe the last page in, in your scripture journal, or if you're following along your Bible, the end of chapter 7 uh, there in Matthew. Here's what Jesus said. So he has just preached the magnum opus of sermons, right? He, he has just preached this life-shattering, world-altering sermon and here's how he concludes it. Here's like the, here's the zinger at the end, right? Every preacher's got to have one. Here's his, ready? Verse 24 of chapter 7. Everyone, that, that's you, by the way, in case we're not clear on that. Everyone, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them or practices them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been built on the rock. And everyone, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them or does not practice them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell. The floods came, the winds blew, and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Jesus concludes his sermon by saying, man, there's one of two kinds, there's two kinds of people. You're, you're, going to, you're going to land in one of two camps, and most people in the world, most people in the world land in the latter. They build their house in the sand. And the truth is, the truth is, I believe that at the end of this, by when, we, when we kind of wake up in May, all right, Memorial Day weekend, most of us in this room will be the person who built their house on the sand. I, I don't say that to like threaten you or to scare you. Just as your pastor, that's the reality of the Sermon on the Mount. L look at the world. This is, this is just, this is the odds are. Most of us, more than 50% of us, will be with the one who built their house on the sand. 
not the person who built their house on the lie. And their house is your life, by the way. And the rain will come. The wind will blow. For some of you, it already has. Like, that's why you're here. Like, I know. That's why I'm here. Teach me how to build my house on the rock. And the rock is Christ. We're going to, we'll get to that in, in May. We'll finish this up with, the, with that parable. Here's what you need to know about the Sermon on the Mount. These are two, two really, really, really important things. And if we're going to be a people who build our house on the rock of Christ rather than on the sand of the world, then there's two things that I believe right out of the gate before we get into it that you need to understand. Number one, the first thing is this. It's going to take incredible resolve on your part. Like right now, you must, in your heart of hearts, in, in, the, in the depths of who you are, you must say, I resolve, I resolve to every moment make the Sermon on the Mount true of my life, to seek to emulate it in every, in every way possible. Right? That's why we've created these scripture journals. So that every single week, you could sit down with the Sermon on the Mount as we walk through it, and really ask two questions. Ask two questions. Number one is, which sermon am I listening to? There's two sermons, friends. Two. There's the Sermon on the Mount, and there's the Sermon of the World, or the Sermon of Culture. And you're going to listen to one or the other. And they do not get along, by the way. At every turn, every turn in the Sermon on the Mount, every, every parable, every story, every point that Jesus makes, he is uprooting the Sermon of the World, and it's uncomfortable for us, which is why so many of us will not make it through. Because at every turn, you're like, I don't know if that's true. Like, that doesn't sound like this. And you're like, it will not. It will not. And so every week, you must sit down with the Sermon on the Mount and say, which one am I actually listening to? And many of us will say, I'm listening, listening to the Sermon on the Mount. But then you must ask the harder question, which one am I practicing? Which one is actually becoming true of my life? Do I, do I believe in the Sermon of the World or am I believing the Sermon on the Mount? Am I practicing the Sermon of the World or am I practicing the Sermon on the Mount? Here's what um, a great theologian, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who uh, was, was a pastor and a theologian from, from London, England. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a brilliant commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. You'll hear us quote him a lot over the next few months. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. He says, it's a very terrible sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Be very careful as you read it, and especially when you talk about it. If you criticize this sermon at any point, you're really saying a great deal about yourself. And I promise you, along the way, there's going to be moments where you say, hang on, hold up. I don't think that's true. I want you to remember this moment. Because what you're declaring, what you're declaring is the God of all things, the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Maker, the Sustainer of all human life is wrong. Be careful with that. You're going to want to. The Sermon on the Mount is like a road grader. It's just going to kind of dig up every area of your life and kind of expose it right there. And either it will leave you stripped bare or it's going to pave something new and beautiful in the place of what it tore up. And all of that depends on how you resolve to be right now. The second thing you need to know is this. Your resolve, not enough. It's just not enough. 
Like when you approach the Sermon on the Mount, like you don't have it in you. And, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to pick on you. Listen, I don't have it in me. Okay, when I read the Sermon on the Mount, I may, I may be able to kind of white knuckle by my bootstraps, love people who don't love me. I could probably do that. I think I do do that. I could probably love people who maybe say things about me that aren't very nice. I've done that before. I can, I can love that person. But to truly love my enemy, I don't have an enemy. It's just, it's not me. I don't have that in me. Maybe you're better than I am. Maybe you're more righteous and more holy than I am. But I just, I just don't have that in me. To long, to long, to mourn. Like produce in me, create in me mourning. It's not in my nature. I want comfort, man. I, I, just, want, I just want things to be peaceful. I want my kids to be quiet. I want everybody to get along. Like that's what I want. That's my natural longing. Am I alone? Am I the only one in the room that's like, I just don't have it in me. And, and so, so yes, we must resolve to work at this. We must resolve to, to clear space in our day to meditate on the Sermon on the Mount and ask hard questions of ourselves. But then we also must resolve to just pray it into our lives. Which is why we spent the first two weeks of the year preaching on prayer so that we might be prepared to engage in the Sermon on the Mount. Because if the Spirit of God doesn't show up in my life and in your life, this is all meaningless. There's no hope for you. There's no hope for me. Like the Spirit of Christ must do a work in my heart and in my soul to produce the things that are talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. I can't produce them. No, no preaching of mine is going to produce it in you. It must be the Spirit of Christ. And the Spirit of Christ wants more for you than you want for yourself. We talk about this a lot. You got to live in this reality, right? Christ is the sustainer of all life. He's giving you every single breath that you're breathing right now, every heart, every ounce of blood that's pumping through your heart, every beat. It's, it's a gift from his hands because he loves you, man. He's created you. He's molded you and shaped you into his image. It's by no mistake that you are here. And here he is preaching what it means to be human in the kingdom of God. His plan for human flourishing. Do you think, do you think that maybe, maybe he has something in there that might be good for you? It's all good for you. He wants to do a work inside of you. To produce a change inside of you that will, that will help you to... Take the Sermon on the Mount and may it be true of kind of every area of your life that you might embody the Sermon on the Mount, that you might become the picture of what it means to be human in the kingdom of God. And it's not going to be easy. But I believe if we resolve right now in this moment to every week ask hard questions of ourselves and every day pray it into our lives at the end of this, Months from now, months from now, you may wake up having reordered and restructured your life on the person of Christ. And when the winds come and the rains fall, there you will stand. And if not, I, I can't help you. I can't help you. Because the, the only other alternative is to build your house on the sand, to build your life on the sermon of the world. And when the rains come, when the wind blows, when the, when the job dries up, when the, when the health runs out, it's not going to stand. So, 
Let's do this together. Let's dive into the Sermon on the Mount. Um, And that first page in the booklet is the Beatitudes, which is where the sermon begins. Some some commentaries would argue it begins at the very beginning of chapter 5, but we're going to start with the first words of Jesus, where he actually begins to speak. So he goes up on the mountain, he sits down, his disciples are there. Um, At this point, he's wildly popular. The crowds begin to press in and gather kind of there on on the mount. Um, he finds kind of this, this, fat, this flat place, this plain where he can, where he can stand and, and preach a sermon, but he doesn't stand, he sits down because he's, he's a rabbi, that's what rabbis do. He sits down and begins to, to teach, to teach his disciples and to teach his people a new way of life, how, how to be human in the kingdom of God. And you must understand the kingdom of God in order to understand the Sermon on the Mount. So in a couple of weeks, we're actually going to flush that out and unpack that more. We don't have time this morning. We're going to jump into the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes, Beatitudes is a weird word in just by itself, beatitude, right? It comes from a Latin word, beatus, uh, which is the Latin word for blessed, right? And your translation of your Bible probably says blessed, right? Um, Blessed are the poor in spirit, or blessed are those who mourn. Um, some more modern translations have, have taken this word um, and translated it as happy, right? Happy are those who mourn. And, and this is a hard word to translate. In the original Greek, uh, the word makarios is, is the word that we find, find there. And so we have these eight or nine uh, Marxisms, is what, they're, is what they're known as, uh, from this original Greek word makarios. Can you say makarios? There you go, Greek. Um, makarios um, does not mean blessed. There's other Greek words for blessed, right? Blessing is this idea of like, man, if you do these things, then God is going to bless you. He's going to give you a blessing. That's a good thing. But that's not what's happening here. Jesus is not saying, if you, if you, if you become poor in spirit, then God is going to bless you. No, he's saying, makarios, this kind of pre-existing condition. Makarios is your state of being. It's who you are. Um, and so there's, there's other words that would have been used for bless. The reality is that there's no real good English word for makarios. Um, uh, Scott McKnight, theologian, says, On this one word, makarios, the entire passage of the Beatitudes stands. And from this one word, the whole list hangs. Get this word right, and the rest falls into place. Get it wrong, and the whole thing falls apart. So makarios is a statement that describes a person's position, their, their state of being, how they exist, at the kind of the core of who they are. Another theologian, more modern commentary, a guy by the name of Jonathan Pennington, um, he, he offers his own translation of the Sermon on the Mount. And you know how he translates the word makarios? I'll give you a hint. It's one of our favorite words here. Flourishing. He says the kind of the most accurate English word, he says, even though there is no real English word that does it justice, something that's better than blessed or something that's better than happy is actually flourishing because we're describing the person's state of being. They're flourishing. They're, they're, they're growing in a healthy and right way, flourishing. And so this morning I want to read to you his translation of the Beatitudes, says this in, in chapter 5, verse 1, when he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he ascended the mountain, and when he sat down, 
with his disciples, the disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, flourishing are the poor in spirit, because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Flourishing are the mourners, because they will be comforted. Flourishing are the humble or the meek, because they will inherit the world. Flourishing are the ones hungering and thirsting for righteousness, because they will be satisfied. Flourishing are the merciful, because they will be given mercy. Flourishing are the pure in heart, because they will see God. And flourishing are the peacemakers, because they will be called children of God. Flourishing are the ones persecuted on account of righteousness, because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Finally, flourishing are you, whenever people revile and slander and speak all kinds of evil things against you on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. In the same way, the people slandered the prophets who came before you. So right out of the gate, friends, we have a problem. Right out of the gate, the Sermon on the Mount is disrupting the Sermon of the World or the Sermon of Culture because this list does not make sense. Doesn't make sense. All right, the Sermon of Culture says, and flourishing are those who have a great job. Flourishing are those who have a hot spouse. Flourishing are those who have a great house. Flourishing are those who have well-behaved children. Praise the Lord. Flourishing are those who have things together. Flourishing are those who dress nice. Flourishing are those who have peace in their life. Flourishing are those who are relaxed. Flourishing are those who are on vacation. That's the Sermon of the World. But the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, no, no, no. Flourishing are those who are poor in spirit. Those who are mourning the peacemakers and the persecuted, those, those are the ones who are flourishing. So like day one, scripture journal, which sermon am I listening to and which one am I practicing? Like the response should be like right there, written in the journal should be, I'm building my house on the sand. Because nobody in this room buys that. Like you, you just don't. Be honest with yourself. Like you're not living that way. Money produces flourishing. Happiness produces flourishing. A good spouse produces flourishing. Not mourning, sorrow, meekness. Let's be honest. So we must wrestle, we must ask the question, how, how do these things produce flourishing in our lives? What is Jesus getting out here? So let's just one by one, begin to unpack these. We'll see how far we get this morning. First one, flourishing are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Flourishing are the poor in spirit. Now, there's two Greek words that Jesus could have used here for poor. He chooses the worst of them, like the most, the most poor, the brokest of the broke, the spiritually bankrupt. So he's not actually talking about money. He's not. He's talking about those who are spiritually bankrupt, the poor in spirit, those who have nothing spiritually to offer. I have, I have nothing in me that is of worth or value when it comes to my spiritual life. You see, so many people spend their days trying to earn spiritual worth. 
If I could just, if I could just obey and sustain and just work a little bit harder, then I could be counted as righteous. Like my goal in life is to be able to say, and I am worthy. I am righteous. Do you think you are righteous? I think I'm righteous. Because the sermon of the world says that's where flourishing is. Flourishing is in those who kind of prove to everybody else that they're worthy of something spiritually. And Jesus says, that's not true. He's looking right at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he says, flourishing are the poor in spirit. Flourishing are those who are spiritually bankrupt. Why? How? Why? Because when you are bankrupt spiritually, where are you going to go? To the one who holds all spiritual currency. And it's not some prophet or priest or king. It's Christ alone. Christ alone holds all spiritual currency, right? When the rich young ruler comes to Christ and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' first words are, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. Nobody. Everybody is spiritually bankrupt, no matter how hard we try. And Jesus, nobody's good. Not, not Mother Teresa, not the Pope, not anybody. Like, nobody's got it in them, except for God alone. Isaiah says, our most righteous deeds are filthy rags before him. No matter how hard you work, no matter how hard you try, no matter how, how good you think you may be, when you actually view the righteousness of Christ, if, if he removes the blinders from your soul and you see the full glory of Christ in his full righteousness, you could, you're ruined. No matter how good you may think you are, you look at that and you say, that's not me. Like, I'm not that. Nobody can say that I'm that. And so when we realize our spiritual poverty, when the blinders are removed and when we see our depravity before Christ, we're not driven away from him, we're driven towards him because we know our need for a savior. So flourishing are the ones who are driven towards Christ. Flourishing are those who live awakened to their spiritual bankruptcy. And the rest of the world who's constantly seeking to be worthy constantly seeking to be righteous, lives blinded, lives blinded. And the problem is, they'll never know the kingdom of heaven. They'll never know the kingdom of heaven. Flourishing or they're spiritually bankrupt because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who will enter the kingdom of heaven are those who know their need for a savior and never lose their sense of that need. And so we must pray this into our lives. We must pray it into our lives. Oh Christ, would you give me an understanding of my lack, my lack of spiritual currency? Would you show me my depravity that I may never stop clinging to you, that I might be driven to the foot of the cross? Flourishing are those who are driven to the source of all true human flourishing, Christ alone. Next, flourishing are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, this one's tricky. Um, for a number of reasons, but even, even theologians, when you read uh, different commentaries, different theologians on this, um, they kind of land in one of two camps. Some kind of take the obvious approach, right? Flourishing are those who mourn, right? 
those who are sad, like deeply sad, not like I cut my finger sad, but like really sad, like we associate mourning often with death. And so those Christians, right, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God here. And so the Christians who suffer loss in this life, whether that be true illness, the loss of a loved one or a friend, those who truly mourn, those who experience deep human sorrow will find comfort. Not just in the future, out there in the distance when Christ returns and, or when our eyes close in death and we are awakened to this new glory. No, 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 no. Now, in this moment. And this is true. This argument is true. It's, it's, it's true. Some of you guys know this. My dad has a crazy, horrible, rare disease. It's called cortal basal degeneration. It's a hard thing to remember and you don't even want to remember it, I promise you. Um, it's this neurological disorder and basically his body's fine. Like he's fine. But his brain's like, no, you're not. His brain's telling him that he can't do anything anymore. His brain's telling him like his arms don't work anymore. And his brain's telling him his legs don't work anymore. His brain's telling him that like his, his mouth doesn't work anymore. And so he, he, can't, he can't move. He can't talk. But, he, uh, but mentally, he's fully aware. Like, it's like the worst thing ever. It's like, it's horrible. Like, it's just insanely painful. It's even more painful if you, like, knew my dad before. Like, my whole life, my dad is, like, Mr. Like, outdoors, hunting, fishing, playing, getting on the ground, roughhousing and wrestling, and, like, the biggest jokester of all time. Like, I mean, the dude just never stops telling jokes. And so even now, even now, we, we make fun of him, and I know that sounds horrible, um, but if you knew my dad, you, you would know, like... We're just always going to make fun of him. I mean, he's just, he's just the biggest, he's just the biggest goof. So now he like tries to tell a joke, but he can't like really talk. Um, and so he's like telling this joke and you're trying to make sense of it and you got it. Like, okay, I'm tracking with you. I'm tracking with you. But then he goes to deliver the punchline and he can't get it out. And so he starts like dying. He's just like laughing so hard, but like the, nobody else in the room has gotten the punchline. So we're all like, what is happening right now? We started to start, all start laughing. It's such a joy. Here's the reality. I mean, through this whole process, man, my dad has learned to mourn. My family has learned to mourn. And the whole world, like the sermon of the world looks in on that and says, man, there's, there's no meaning to that. It's just, that's just pointless suffering. It's just all sad. It's all sad. But those who are in Christ, who learn to mourn and are invited into mourning. You see, the King of Kings, the Savior of the world, is right now redeeming the curse of sin. And the the Sermon of the World doesn't have language for that. But the Sermon of Christ does. He's right now redeeming the curse of sin. So we can, we can, in our mourning, be driven to a Savior who knows the full weight of suffering, who is hung on a cross and who has experienced excruciating pain, knows everything that my dad is going through and more. And we can come to him and find comfort and find joy and we can cling there. Mourning, our mourning as followers of Jesus drives us to the cross. It's this beautiful thing. I wouldn't wish it upon anybody. But at the same time, I know, I know that there is a newfound depth of spiritual maturity in my dad and in me because of what he's experiencing. 
And Christ is leading him through that. And one day, yeah, his eyes will close in death and he'll awake to glory and he'll walk and dance and play and we'll do all those things together. But our mourning drives us to the source of all human flourishing. We're reminded in the Sermon on the Mount that human flourishing is not found in our health. It's found in Christ alone. Now the flip side of the argument is that, no, 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 Jesus isn't talking about suffering. Jesus is talking about our sin, right? Those who mourn their sin. Some of you are here this morning because you've done something in your life and you know God's not happy with that thing. Like, that goes against what God's called you to. And you mourn your sin. You're like, God, like, why? Why did I do that? Why did I do that? Like, why can't I seem, no matter how hard I try, I can't break this habit of sin in my life? Like, why can't I just treat my kids a little bit better? Like, why, no matter how hard I try, I get angry with them? Like, why can't I be more loving to my spouse? Why can't I be freed from this greed or this love of money? Like, no matter how hard I try, I can't get out of it. I'm stuck in this box of sin. And you mourn that sin. See, my argument would be, it doesn't matter where you land. If you think it's human, like pain, suffering, disease, loss, or if it's sin, both end in the same place. They drive you to your Savior who knows the full weight of your sin because it was laid on him on the cross. It was laid on him on the cross. And so he can now bring full comfort to your life And so in our mourning, in our mourning, we are driven to the source of all true human flourishing. So flourishing are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And I don't think that 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 is a future hope. For sure it is. There's a day when when, when there will be no more mourning. But I think it's it's a current promise. We are comforted now in our mourning because of the work of Christ. Next. Flourishing are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, this one's going to disrupt some things, I I promise. It seems like an easy one, but for a lot of us, it's not going to be, okay? Uh, Heads up on the Sermon on the Mount. I I do love our country. I love where I get to live. I love America. The Sermon on the Mount is going to disrupt a lot of our American values. Like, we think these are like Christian values, but then you actually dive into the Sermon on the Mount, you're like, oh my gosh, that's not, that's not America, That's not the American way. And this is maybe the first glimpse of that, right? This idea of meekness. There's an American definition of meekness, right? Maybe you've heard it. Um, We would like to think that meekness is like strength under control, right? It's like like power under control. Anybody heard that definition before? Anybody hear hear that? No, it's new to you guys. Anybody hear that? Okay, a few of you. Yeah, meekness. Meekness, the definition of meekness is strength under control. Um, That's not true. It's not true. That's like America trying to make the Sermon on the Mount sexy. It's like, how do we get men to buy into this? I know, strength under control. That's not what it means. Meekness is like full, complete, total, utter submission to someone else. And when that's forced, it's never a good thing. When it's forced, it's hard, it's ugly, it's it's just sad. And and always, it's just broken. But when it's volunteered, it's rare and it's beautiful. It's it's astounding that someone would say to someone else, 
I surrender all to you. I submit all that I am. Like it's so rare to actually experience that. People say it all the time. Every single time people, somebody gets married, they say that. But the reality is, is that most people are holding on to something. They're like, I surrender all to you except for this. This is mine. Everything else is yours. I surrender all. Most people who come to Christ say, I surrender all to Christ. All of it. This thing back here? No, no, no. That's, don't worry about that. I surrender all to you. It's a rare thing to actually see somebody surrender all. But when we receive a glimpse of the worth of Christ, like the full beauty of Christ, like, oh, the depths of the riches of Christ. When you, when you actually see the full glory of Christ, if, if he might be so gentle and kind to you to remove the blinders of your heart, that you might see how astounding he is, the maker, the sustainer of all things, who loves you. Like, when you see that, you realize all of this stuff that I've been hiding back here is silly compared to this. It's all meaningless compared to this. I count it all lost. I count it all rubbish compared to knowing Christ. And so I submit it all to him. Not, not just my power or my money or my success or my fame, but my anxiety, my depression, my sorrow, my grief. I submit it all to him. It's these things from my past that I've been holding on to that I'm not submitting to anybody, they're now his because I'm ruined for anything less. Like he is worthy of all of that. Complete and total meekness. Blessed are those who actually find that. Flourishing are those who learn to release everything at the foot of the cross. And those are the ones that are going to actually inherit the earth. Those are the ones who one day, the ones who have submitted all things, will rule all things with Christ, who is the head of all things. Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, he says it this way. He says, the only man or woman... It was a different time, ladies. It was a different time. The only man who is at all capable of carrying out the injunctions of the Sermon on the Mount is the man who is perfectly clear in his mind with regard to the essential character of a, the Christian. You gotta, you gotta get right in your mind with what it means to be a Christian. It's the only way you're ever gonna get to the end of this thing. Our Lord says that this is the only kind of person who is truly blessed, that is actually happy, that is actually flourishing, is the person who stands before Christ and realizes, I've got nothing. There's nothing that I'm holding on to that I should be holding on to. It's all yours. This is the definition of a Christian, one who has submitted all to Christ. All the good and all the bad. These are the ones who truly flourish. And these are the ones who truly inherit the earth. Last one, we'll stop here. Flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Friends, you, you want to really flourish? Like really, really, really flourish? You got to change your appetite. You got to desire better things. You got to hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. So how do you do that? How do you... How do you change your appetite? You change what you eat. You see, here's, here's what happens at Flourishing Grace. I've seen it again and again and again and again as a pastor. Again and again and again and again and again. People, people come here, and maybe this is why you're here. Maybe, maybe you're new here, and this is what brought you here. 
because you experience one of the first three of these beatitudes. Like in your life, something has created in you a spiritual poverty. Like your, your whole life, you've been trying to like earn worthiness or righteousness and your eyes have been open to the reality that that's never gonna happen. Like it's all fake. And she showed up here to hear about grace, to hear more about the source of all real spiritual currency. Or, or maybe you came here in here mourning because you lost your job or your spouse left you and you don't think they're coming back or the doctor called and there's no cure for what you got. Somebody, somebody close to you died and, you, and they're, they're gone, they're not coming back. And you've crawled in here just mourning, looking for the source of comfort. Or, or, or maybe, maybe, maybe you came in here because, man, praise God, he removed the blinders. You've seen his glory. You've seen the, his worth and his value. And you realize, man, I have nothing left to hold on to in my life. I must submit it all to him. And so you showed up here. Here you are. But what happens is a few months from now, maybe a year, you land the dream job. Your spouse comes back. You hear about his grace and you realize, oh man, you're free from earning some title of worthy or righteous. You're never going to be that unless you have it in him. And in your freedom and in this goodness and in this flourishing, you're gone. And you've built your life on the sermon of the world. It's on sand, man. It's on sand. Because you never learned to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hunger and thirsting for righteousness is the thing that's going to keep you in the Sermon on the Mount. So how do we increase our appetite? You eat better stuff. This is the reality, right? When I was in college, I, I loved canned tuna fish. Canned tuna fish is disgusting. It's horrible. Like, you, who does that? Like, who eats? God, I don't know. If you're into that, man, as your pastor, I'm telling you, you need to seek counseling. There's something wrong with you. Like, it's not Okay. Canned tuna fish is gross. You see, later in life, I married this woman who is an amazing, amazing cook. Like, she can cook anything. Everything she touches just turns to, like, like an explosion of flavor. It's so good. It's so amazing. And now, like, that stuff from college, like, disgusts me. It's so gross. Everything I ate in college is disgusting. It's so bad. Everything I drank in college is disgusting. It's so bad. Like, who drinks that stuff, man? Now that you've actually had good, right wine, who goes back to Natty Lights? Can I say that in church? It's gross. Nobody does that. Nobody goes back to Natty Light and canned tuna fish, man. That's disgusting. But in college, you're like, this is fine. It's not fine. I've, my appetite's changed because I tasted something better, far greater, far better. So you want to increase your appetite for righteousness. Feast on righteousness. Feast on Christ. Feast on the word of God. Rest in the Sermon on the Mount. Devour it, eat it, chew on it, every word on every page. Immerse your life in him, the source of all righteousness. No one is righteous but him. Devour him, eat him. You'll find yourself hungering for more and for more and for more. 
And so my call on your life this morning, I'm just as your pastor, as many of you as your friend, man, let's spend the next season of our lives with great resolve saying, man, which one am I actually listening to? Which one am I actually practicing? And man, am I praying this into my life? Let's do this now together. Let's just pray this into our life. This morning, we're gonna, we're gonna take communion together. Um, and this is actually just kind of this beautiful moment for us. Communion reminds us that we have all of these things that we're hungering for. All, all of these things that are, all these bad things that seem to be bad things that are driving us, they're driving us to Christ. And so we can, we can eat, we can feast on righteousness, we can indulge on him. We can experience true joy in the midst of mourning because of the work of the cross. And so here's what I want us to do, just at, before we partake in communion together, is to just pray this over our lives. If you are a follower of Jesus, man, you are invited to partake in communion with us. If you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I want to gently and kindly ask you to let it pass you by. Frankly, this means a lot to us, and it would not mean much to you at all. But if you're ready, if you're ready to begin today, let's begin today. Let's bow our heads and let's prepare our hearts. Let's pray this. Let's pray this together. Jesus, would you open my eyes to my spiritual depravity? Would you show me how poor in spirit I actually am? Would you show me that no matter how, no matter how, no matter how many prayers I pray, no matter how many penance I pay, no matter how many religious things I check off the box or how many things I volunteer at or no matter how much money I give to religion, spiritually bankrupt without you. Those things earn me nothing when it comes to righteousness. Open our eyes that we might be driven the source of all true spiritual currency that we might be clothed in your righteousness filled with your riches of grace Jesus would you increase right now would you increase in me my mourning that's a dangerous prayer friends but I'm challenging you this morning to pray that prayer would you increase my sorrow whether that's sickness and death the loss and suffering or whether it's the sin in my life would you, would you increase my sorrow that I might know true comfort that I might be driven to you and spurred on to you that I might increase in grace as I cling to the cross
this. Jesus, would you, would you make me meek? Like really meek? Would you reveal to me the things in my life that I'm hiding, that I'm clinging to, that I'm saying this is mine? Would you show me your worth and your beauty, your might, your majesty? Would I be ruined? Would I be ruined to cling to the things of this world? Whether good or bad. Help me to lay them at the foot of the cross. Full, complete, total submission. Would you alone produce that in me? Because only you alone can. Lastly, Jesus, would you increase our spiritual appetite? Would you make us hunger and thirst for righteousness? Would I lose my taste for the things of this world as I feast on you? Would I lose my taste for success? Would I lose my taste for money? Would I lose my taste for pride, anger? Would I lose my taste for lust? Would I lose my taste for jealousy? As you give me a taste for righteousness. Would our lives of the people in this room, would they be transformed by the Sermon on the Mount? Would we release our grasp on the Sermon of the World and declare what is true, declare what is right, and begin to practice what is true, begin to practice what is right? Would you drive us to the foot of the cross again and again and again and again? Would you increase all these things that the Sermon of the World says, man, that's not good, that's not good, that's not good. Would we be people who say, no, it is good? Because it drives us to the only one who is good. Let us feast on Christ every day. Let it begin today. Pray these things in his name. In the name of Jesus. Amen.